Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Justin and Owen from HEB, and we discuss how they used chaos engineering to build resilient systems that were able to scale, how to take risk in an organization by building credibility, and how they are applying the concept of extreme ownership throughout their engineering organization. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So we've got Owen and Justin. Owen, you want to introduce yourself and then Justin can introduce himself. Sure. Uh, my name's Owen Samuels, uh, VP of engineering at HEB um, and CTO of Favor. So sort of a dual role um, is, is my uh, title. Uh, Justin Turner. I'm the senior engineering manager responsible for uh, digital fulfillment systems and teams at HEB, which is really our curbside, uh, last mile delivery, make ready. Um, and I have a couple of warehouse systems in my portfolio as well. Um, but yeah. That was one of our first questions. Like when we were researching, we were like, why does a grocery store need an engineering team, engineering management team? <laughs> well, um, if you look at the amount of like problems we have to solve, uh, it's pretty complex. Uh, from the farm to uh, or various vendors that we get our food from and how they interact with us all the way to warehouse and transportation to being within the store uh, with point of sale systems, inventory. Uh, and then you look at our fulfillment systems now, which uh, are very complex. And that's the stuff I work with is, you know, we get an e e-commerce order from heb.com how do we most efficiently shop that order and that factors in things like uh, e-commerce fulfillment systems as well and so um, end to end heb is a, a like a really interesting set of problems that are highly complex um, and there's not a whole lot off the shelf to solve those problems end to end so we have to build a lot ourselves yeah you forgot manufacturing. We have pharmacies in our uh, in our stores. There's just a lot of different things going on that um, have a lot of uh, integration points as well. Um, you know, I, I actually I I felt the same way as you did when we were acquired by HEB. I was like, what what? And then I got um, involved on the engineering side at, at HEB, and there's a lot. It's super complex, and that. You know, I gravitated over towards that because I was like, "Whoa, that's a some interesting uh, complex systems that it would be great to work on." Yeah, we don't have any of them in in my town that I'm aware of. Can you give me an idea about how big HEB is? Uh, sure. So we have uh, around 400 locations between uh, Texas and Mexico. Wow, how many employees is that? Uh, it's over a hundred thousand. I don't know the uh, specific number, but. Okay. And so you provide services like to the, all, you, you cover the technology for the full spectrum of the brand. That's right. Um, we have, we're kind of organized in uh, business areas or business portfolios. Some teams are, you know, off the shelf systems. Uh, and so we have our systems org that services a variety of uh, different business use cases. And then we have engineering, which uh, Owen leads, which, uh, you know, warehouse 
specifically, I work in enterprise engineering, so digital fulfillment rolls up to that, and that includes a lot of uh, warehouse systems. Um, we have order management, pricing, uh, coupons, just a variety of stuff, and then uh, the digital fulfillment systems as well. Nice, nice. And then I know you guys have a connection to Gremlin. Uh, Matt Forney over there, I talked to him. And he said that you guys actually ended up like using Gremlin. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, it was early 2019. We were in a, a place where our fulfillment systems had kind of, the expectations around it had changed. We curbside grew from like a nice to have convenience for customers to like this mid- mission critical revenue stream for HEB. And uh, we needed to get uh much better in our resiliency. We needed to modernize and um, move to the cloud and all the things that make up our modernization journey to get to that higher level of resilience and be able to move faster. And so we put together a strategy of like breaking into different domain domains, like into services. uh, And the way that we approached it was we wanted to move as fast as possible and make sure we weren't going to create a distributed monolith or a really bad situation for ourselves because microservices, they're very hard to get right. And the way that we wanted to approach it was introducing failure early rather than waiting for the failures to happen or you know finding out all of our assumptions were wrong at the end. Let's validate those assumptions with a tool like Gremlin so that we can move that much faster and know that the thing that we deliver um, along this journey is going to be resilient to the complexities and realities of running a production system. Nice. How did you find them? It actually started as like a cold email. Uh, So (laughs) proof to vendors that sometimes like cold contact does work. Uh, I was, uh, my wife was in the hospital doing five weeks of bed rest and I was reading email probably when I shouldn't have been trying to keep sane uh and i saw an email from gremlin i'm like oh that sounds cool chaos engineering i kind of sort of heard about that um and so i went and did a bunch of googling and i shot off an email like oh this sounds awesome i want to see what this is about and then you reach out you find out that it's pretty useful you give it a little demo and then you decide to go full-blown integrate it into the organization so we, it started with uh, bringing Gremlin on site. They gave us a demo of the tool and we saw it wasn't really about the tool as much as it was the process and the mindset. The tool was incredible because it did a lot of, uh, you hear about other tools like a chaos monkey or something like that, that can shut servers on and off. Gremlin was great because it had like uh, network attacks, which was like a, a lot of what happens to us is the the circumstances around our project. And we could simulate a lot of that. And they showed that to us, which was wonderful. But going into it, we were like, oh, cool. We're just going to break stuff randomly and learn stuff. And that's not what it is. It's scientifically introducing failure to your project. And uh, it started by them showing us how to do game days, which is using the scientific method. You come up with a hypothesis of what you think is going to happen with a specific gremlin attack. And then uh, you validate the results. And if it's not what you expected, then you put in a fix to make yourself more resilient or you put in a fallback or a failback or something that makes you more resilient and fail gracefully. And so how do you deploy that to like all of your teams after you were bought in and you saw it and you tried it within one, like how did you roll it out to multiple teams? 
Uh, so it's it became available to all of my teams, and some of enterprise engineering is starting to adopt it. Um, but it really uh, it's just selling it internally. We run our own data centers, and we do uh, you know DR failovers and things like that for our systems that run on prem. But this was a completely different mindset. So it starts with the mindset of, hey, rather than making sure we can just fail an entire data center over, let's see how what happens if you inject failure at the application level and you bring other teams in, you show them the success that uh, you let them ride along with game days and let them make the decision if it's the right time for them to adopt. And for a lot of my teams, it was the right time. So if you're going to give like tips to, you know, other technology leaders who are wondering how to sell something internally, what would that be? Uh, start with, start with the reality, like sh- show success, but sh- um, show them by doing this, this is what this prevented, or this is the, the financial benefit or the um, tie into whatever their value is. Uh, because that's what you're going to uh, most influence them with. And with Gremlin, I think everybody wants higher resiliency and uptime. And focus on the mindset rather than the tool. The tool is nice and it gets you, um, it, it enables them to adopt it more easily. But the mindset is the hardest piece to get people to transition. So it sounds like you just stayed open you constantly showed, you let them involved in the, in the game days. They sort of sold themselves. Some people caught on and then you can generate some more steam with the people who are liking it. That's right. And uh, don't be forceful uh, would be my other piece of advice is not everybody uh, is ready for that part of their journey. Some folks in teams need to do other foundational work before they can be ready for that kind of a thing and just be patient. And then, Oh, and over with Favor, I was really curious to know, so I have a, a background in engineering, and so I, I wanted to ask you about, like, what's the most important piece of, of like, feature or software involved in that life cycle at, at Favor about how you deliver the groceries? Uh, I mean, for... It's it's like any any engineering sort of uh, team. Like, I think the most critical piece to any good engineering team or good system is foundational infrastructure that has to be really um, solid and, uh, you know, repeatable and maintainable and scalable. Um, So in my mind, that's always the first place you start. I think if you go specific into favor and what's like the critical system or, you know, the critical application when or critical feature when it comes to to favor, there's, there's so many, um, but, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to um, probably the the however we're however we're presenting our information to our customers. So if that's our mobile app or our um, mobile app or our website for our customers, but when I say customers, you can also think about drivers um, and merchants, right? Like um, those are kind of our three big users that we have to make sure that we give them the right tools. Um, to be successful in our ecosystem. What's the feel over there? Like while working at Favor, are, are you guys trying to become like the premier delivery service of the world, of the United States or of Texas? Like what, what's the mission over there? Uh, I think the, the mission really is, uh, you know, become um, the 
premier delivery application in Texas. Um, you know, we, I could go into the whole story of, of favor the last five years, we were national and we kind of moved back into Texas and kind of, uh, decided to concentrate there, um, because we think that's the best state or the best place to, uh, start and then move out from there. So we're still on our journey, but right now it's, it's really like becoming the, the go-to, um, delivery service of Texas. Nice. That's exciting, right? Especially because the the future relocation, I might uh, end up using the service. That'd be nice. Yeah. Well, we're you know, if you move to Dallas, you know, we're in Dallas, and if you would have moved back to Lubbock, you know, where you're from, you know, just we have HEB there now too, which we didn't before, but HEB is there now too. But um, you know, we also have Central Market, which is in Dallas, so that's a HEB uh, store as well. So you can try that out as well. Nice. I, I, I'm really curious to, to know, Justin, you used to be a prison guard? Uh, that's right. Okay. So when I saw that you were a prison guard, I was like, that's awesome, first of all. Secondly, I said, that's a great opportunity to, you know, for you to talk about how you made the career transition. Sure. Um, well, uh, for me, it didn't start as a career. I was an 18-year-old out of uh, high school and I'm like, I didn't want a bunch of student loan debt and living in Huntsville where I grew up, that was the job. You either worked at uh, Walmart, you worked at um, the college, Sam Houston State University, or you worked at the prison. And uh, not having a, a college degree yet, I was like, okay, I'll go do four years, learn a little bit about the world. And it turned into a longer detour than that. Just, uh, I was there for nine years and I'm thankful for the experience. It was, uh, it grew me a lot and it was a good place to spend my time while uh, I got to a place where I was mature enough to actually focus on college. But my intent was always to get my computer science degree and go into game development. Um, back then, you know, I loved video games. I, I just, I had that, uh, that view of like, that was the thing that I wanted to do. And uh, I got fortunate enough to actually interview at HEB before I got my degree. And I thought HEB was just going to be a way station for me, that I was going to be there long enough to get enough experience to get my foot in the game industry. And what I found was, that, you know, I built games in college and while I was working at the prison and all that kind of stuff on my own and with my friends, that same endorphin boost I would get from completing a project like that, I got from solving the problems that existed in grocery. And the environment was uh, healthy and good at HEB. The culture was amazing. And I, I kind of accidentally found my home. And uh, I feel like I won the lottery uh, out of the box with uh, coming to HEB first. So I want, I want an article on like, the leadership lessons that you learned from being a prison guard applied to running a software development team. They do (laughs) to a certain extent they do. Uh, You learn everything in the prison is extremes. It's humanity to whatever extreme. And when you're dealing with those level of extremes, you want to be firm. You want to be fair. You want to be consistent and you learn how to, manage people's emotions and how they handle their expectations not being met or and if you can scale that down to interacting with humans that are not imprisoned um, and that you're leading um, and learn simple lessons like hey if i'm going to give somebody feedback i should do it in private i should do it where 
you know, they don't have to save face in front of other people. Um, you know, conflict management, because conflict is a problem in the prison and it's a problem at a much lesser scale in a professional work environment as you work on solutions. And so if you can effectively scale those lessons and uh, uh, focus on good outcomes, it, it's been very beneficial in uh, my move into leadership as I've grown my career at HUB. Any prison experience, Owen? We set the bar high. <laughs> no, no, no prison experience over here. Sorry. I, I like that though. I, I, I'm not making light of it, Justin. I think it's incredibly like admirable because those situations are, first of all, it's you know life threatening to some extent. So it's like it's it, akin to like serving in the armed forces, right? Like you're doing a job that's very, very difficult, that's very demanding, and I think it's. I just imagine you know, how easy it is for you to run an engineering team or have to let someone go or like these difficult moments when you've had all sorts of other types of extreme experiences, right? Yeah. And so it's like, it definitely, uh, like you overtrain for the situation you're going to experience, right? That's how you win. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that's that's pretty cool. I've I've never talked to anybody that I, I mean I have a brother in, or like a cousin-in-law who's actually a prison guard, but um, yeah, I've never had any conversations with somebody who's done that and then become a technical leader. And so I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, thank you. I'm I'm very thankful for the experience. I wasn't at the time. You know, all I could think about was getting past that part of my life with uh, me and my wife moving on and benefiting from getting through college and and, and all of that. But now that I've it's far enough in the rearview mirror, I can reflect and be thankful. I don't think I would be where I am in my life if I hadn't gone through that. Yeah, and now you and you can still play video games, right? That's right. Uh, very rarely, but yes. <laughs> I know, I know, man. I have kids, and it's like I I want to play video games, but uh, it doesn't. The opportunity doesn't present itself very often. <laughs> That's right. Are you, how old are your kids? Are they old enough to play video games? Yeah, uh, kind of. Got a three-year-old girl and a one-and-a-half-year-old boy. The three-year-old girl, okay. she plays games on her tablet like every night before bed. Um, but the boy isn't in, into the like use of the technology yet. I think probably in another year or so when they get yeah. a little bit older. That's when it gets good. Like I, I have an eight-year-old and eight-year-old son, 12-year-old daughter, or 13 now. Uh, but the eight-year-old is super into playing his Switch, so I get to play some video games now and then when when he lets me. Isn't so that's that nice. isn't that Switch thing crazy? I was just at my parents, and I've got a um, like an adopted sister, like that's a lot younger, and I was watching her play this video game thing, and she was playing a Switch, and I was like, oh, that's a Switch because I've heard it, you know, I've just never really seen it or played it, and it's amazing how it's like the whole console. It's it's just so small. It's yeah, it's just fascinating about how different that is than like the Ataris and the NESs and the Nintendos and stuff that that we grew up with, where you'd have you know put all the cords in a box to take it to Thanksgiving at Grandma's house. <laughs> so yeah, well, you wouldn't we had the Game Boy. We yeah. had the Game Boy back then. That is true, but <laughs> the one cousin always hogged it, and like the rest <laughs> of us had to find something to do. <laughs> That's true. Yep. Oh man, so we talked a little bit about chaos engineering. Uh, we talked a little bit about HEB in favor. I was just curious, Owen, were you part of the like MA process or were you a founder at Favor? Uh, so I was not a founder. Uh, I I got brought in just after their Series B 
So I was at Faber for about two years before um, the M&A process happened. But I was uh, have like the only, really the only technical person involved in the M&A um, from a Faber side. So very interesting. I've been in an M&A process on the other side, being the buyer, um, but never the buyee. Um, so definitely, uh, it was a role reversal a little bit. And I, I felt the, the scrutiny that um, I used to put on the, the companies that we were buying um, back in the day. So um, great, uh, a great time. Though. Well, what was your big takeaway from being on the other side? I think the biggest thing that, that I took away from it, especially, you know, at the size that that favor was, was don't, don't think that you need to have everything, you know, all, everything that they asked for, or everything that um, they, they wanted or said, you don't have that, isn't that big of a deal. Um, because, you know, they have to just go through their checks and balances. And it's, it's, it's just a checkbox or not a checkbox. It's not like a make or break the deal. Um, and I think that was kind of one of the biggest things that I learned from the process was like, oh, we don't have this. Oh, no. Okay. But I would get all worked up about it. And like I, the, I would go and figure out what I could do to, to make it right. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter. Yeah. So it gave like some, you know, I, I went through a process like that before. And I know what you're talking about, the due diligence checklist with the yeah. 150 items. And you haven't even heard of some of the names of some of them. <laughs> yeah. And some of them don't, don't like, and, and, you know, it was, it was the, the, one of the interesting parts was, you know, that it was affirmed did a lot of the due diligence, but there was some interaction with some HEV folks. And it was interesting to see like technology differences and like technology understandings of like what disaster recovery means in the cloud compared to when you just have on-prem. It's different, right? And so you have different processes and procedures, but sometimes the people looking at that don't understand that, right? And so it doesn't, it's like a square peg hitting a, a round hole, right? And, you, and they don't get it, right? And so um, it it's definitely was an interesting process for sure. Did HEB, did this acquisition happen before COVID or did it happen because COVID and the need came about? No, it, ha- it happened before. It, it was about two and a half years or more than that now, I think. It, oh, no, about two and a half, uh, two and a half years ago. Why did it happen? Like, did they just see this space emerging and they said, we need, we need to fill this gap and so let's go find someone to acquire instead of build it ourselves? I'm not really sure. Uh, you know, I think it was definitely a space they were looking at. Um, you know, I think if you think about it, there's probably two reasons in my mind is one is the space, you know, that they were getting more and more into curbside and home delivery. Um, and I think the other part was probably like, they're starting to, you know, they've been on this digital transformation for some about a time. And I think maybe acquiring favor was saying like, Hey, we're really serious about this. And we want to, you know, we want to learn what a, what a tech company is like that started as a tech company. And so I think there's both of those were kind of that play would be my guess, you know, but obviously the, the delivery was a big part of it because they, they saw it in the future and, you know, six months ago, it paid off, <laughs> you know, because everyone needed delivery and they, you know, and everyone was trying to figure out how they could do it. And, you know, they, you know, favor was, was uh, provided that support that they needed. 
Justin, were you on the other side of that deal at HEB shopping and trying to find out which of these delivery services that they want to buy? Uh, not a part of the acquisition. Um, I, before favor, there was a smaller delivery service that, um, we had purchased just to dabble our, uh, toes in the water a little bit. And that kind of kicked off the first version of the business. It was hebdu.com before it was all located on one website. And, um, I don't know the leadership decisions that led to favor, but I'm glad that it did. Um, that first, it was kind of a, it felt like a duct tape and bailing wire proof of concept. Uh, and that got us to favor, but yeah, I wasn't a part of the original acquisition. I saw you gave a, a talk at the chaos conference. What was the, what was the main point from that talk? So our journey with uh, curbside fulfillment it really, we did start as a proof of concept as a business. We, um, one store doing a handful of orders a day, very quickly grew to uh, about 40 stores with hundreds of orders a day. And then uh, that's when they hit the gas and we were in hundreds of stores doing many thousands of orders a day. And that growth for HEB was wonderful and it was great for our customers. But that rapid scaling from a prototype to something real, where the expectations had changed around the project and our uptime and how quickly we deliver, um, had meant that some of our early proof of concept decisions on how we structured or how the business would operate several years out were incorrect, but it was very hard to change. And the technical stack itself, all of the integrations, we hadn't really put any resiliency engineering concepts against it. Um, we were just suddenly in this mission critical situation. So we were dealing with incidents, outages, um, uh, you know, trying to firefight while also trying to pivot with the business as they learned more about how to best fulfill customer orders. And, uh, the talk was really about the journey to get to reliability, to get to resiliency. And for us, it was uh, kind of two real big things. It was investing in what we had and not abandoning it. So making our monolith really strong for the remainder of the time that we needed it. And then building a system that was cloud native that um, was built with resiliency first um, so that we could move as fast as the business needed versus building a 10-year system that's not going to change, building something that was ultimately replaceable as needed as the business learns more and pivots. And then what what inspired you to, was this your first conference talk or have you done these before? Uh, it was, uh, I did Google Next earlier this year, but that was more of a high level. I've always been we actually went to Chaos Conf last year, myself, Mike Angstat, one of the other leaders, Matt Rasmussen. Um, and we were we were kind of in the middle of things while we were there. And Mike Angstat, uh, he leads our platform team, lo looked at me and he said, next year, you're going to be on that stage. We're going to be talking about what we did to get out of this situation. And he called it. So I saw the uh, CFPs for the, not for Chaos Conf, but the uh, first conference that Gremlin um, had earlier this year and um, didn't make the first cut, but they wanted to hear the story for the second for the chaos conf, which was great because it allowed a lot more stuff to play out with COVID and it made the story more interesting to tell. Nice. Did you knock it out of the park? I hope so. It, it <laughs> <laughs> we'll say yes. 
for the, yeah, we'll, we'll sure. the ooh, yeah for the record we'll, we'll say yep, yeah you're supposed to say yes crushed it <laughs> <laughs> yeah you got off stage there was a line about 100 150 people wanting signatures and everyone's like but it was after covid so it was probably digital <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man what what other topics did you guys want to talk about did you have something on your mind I guess probably one thing I've learned most through all of this, that the differentiator here was not technology. It was not any specific person or leader. Uh, it was a mindset change that we made about two years ago uh, because the way that our project was structured was you, we integrate very closely with a lot of systems and those systems can go down and that can turn into impact in our system. And the old mindset that we had was like we were a victim of something, right? With these different teams that own different pieces, it's, that's the easy thing to do is pull out that finger and start pointing. For us, the big uh, game changer was extreme ownership by going, you know what? I own not only the system that we've built, the, I own the problems that are inherent in it, and I own getting out of this situation and making, I own the circumstances around my project as much as I own the code that's running. And once we made that mindset shift, which was hard um, and it took practice, we were able to uh, change our thinking around how we architected our project and how we responded to incidents. We were no longer, you know, uh, being blown with the wind. We were, you know, forging our own destiny and I, I think that any leader that finds themselves in a similar situation as where we were, they have the same power or they should have the same power to go, you know what, I'm going to change my circumstances. I'm going to own everything around my project in a way where we can be successful. Preach. I love it. Yes. I, for, I'm a huge fan of extreme ownership. I, I love the book. I love the principles. I'm, I am curious though. Did you like get together with a couple other leaders that were just like, this is enough. We have to do this extreme ownership. Like how, how did it go from, you know, you understanding the principle of extreme ownership to you applying it within your team into that catching fire within the org? Uh, it started with me reading the book, uh, amazing book and amazing mindset. And then me buying copies of that book for my leadership team. And, uh, you know, before I focused on anybody else, uh, in the org, I focused on myself and my teams and let's get this ownership. Let's get rolling. Let's, let's put a plan together. Let's, um, let's own this. And, uh, since then it's grown into my leader, Matt adopting it for enterprise engineering. And now Owen has adopted it as one of his core principles for engineering at HEB. And it's, it's really like, it's an easy sell. Uh, it's harder when you're in those hard moments where you have to own your own failures and you you become challenged and you want to go back to that easy strategy of like, oh, that's not my fault. But once you practice it and a leader like Owen makes it safe for you to own own the things that happen, even when you make a mistake, it starts to catch fire. And we're seeing more and more of it at uh, HEB Engineering. Yeah, I think I think the the stars kind of aligned. You know, Justin started going on, and his team's going on this journey about two years ago. It's pretty much like when Favor was acquired, and then I came over. We hired some new people, and you know, uh, extreme ownership and accountability is is you know a core 
foundational piece of any engineering team when you're trying to bring the best value that you can to the business. So kind of just aligned together. And, you know, um, Justin and his team has done a really good job in, in terms of the enterprise engineering, engineering, which is really back-end or back-end engineering um, systems. Um, and, and he's right. It's, you know, it's little wins. You know, we get and just building momentums. And now you're starting to see people come out of the woodworks and be like, hey, what is this all about? And we're just seeing it uh, gain momentum um, more and more every month, every you know quarter. Um, so definitely has been a really good journey in the last two years. What do you What do you do like when, let's say you have a team member, and we're already two years into this culture, right? And then that team member just maybe they're, you know, hungry angry, lazy, or tired or something. <laughs> and then they start blaming, like, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you catch that early and, and address it? If so what we found is that, that will happen. Um, so a couple of things, there are some people that fundamentally will not adopt that mindset. And that's, that's, that's fine. It's, it's very, very hard, but for the most part, people are open to it. And when you start to see that culture change, it starts to self-correct. It starts to not be acceptable to start your conversation in the place of how do we stop other teams from impacting us or, you know, wherever the blame goes, um, it, it starts to be, okay, we're going to start from a place of blamelessness. What is the problem? How do we formulate a strategy? How do we bring others along with us? You, you know, you talk about the, the principles, cover and move is a big one in that book of you need to cover each other and make sure you're all making the journey. And if you start from that, it, it's mostly self-corrects, but in the cases it doesn't, it's a direct conversation and you keep bringing up those principles and you keep reinforcing the message. And, um, eventually the, uh, person you're working with either comes along or they don't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a basically it becomes a point of herd mentality, right? Once a lot of the herd has all come on board, you know, what happens to the rest, either they come on board or, you know, we we find something else um, for for that team member, or um, and so going back to what Justin says that as you see more and more little wins and you show the measurement of what we're, the of the outcome, people understand the value of of extreme ownership um, and just um, how it sets you up to be successful and and really do bring the value that the business um, expects out of engineering. And one of the most interesting things that I've that I've learned doing all of these interviews and going out and meeting people and everything like that and all these leaders and seeing their teams is that they, the teams almost always exact like projection of the leader and how they think and the decisions they make. And so it's, it just, it started out as, you know, I kind of picked up on it a little bit. I was like, Oh, this is a really high performing person. And then I meet their team and they've got a bunch of high performing people. And, and then I just kept meeting more and more and more and like a machine learning algorithm, just getting better and better data. And then it essentially just became like a rule for me. It's like, it's the abnormality when the team is different, vastly different than the leader. And so I'm always, I, I loved that when Justin, you were answering a question earlier and you said you started with yourself because that's like, step one, right? And That's I'm right. curious to know, uh, as you learned this, because uh, for me, 
I started le- learning this and understanding it. And then it, it bothered me every time like I had blame somewhere else. I was just like, no, oh, because I don't have, when you let, you know, someone else or something else have the blame, you remove your ability to control the outcome. Right. It's like, yeah. I can't, if I make it my fault, I gain the ability to, you know, make better decisions in the future. And so I started, you know, applying this in my life. And then I started noticing like my spouse, my wife being like, what? It's not your fault. What do you, she's like, that's not your fault. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, no, it is my fault. And then it started to get like contagious with her. Uh, but I mean, it definitely wasn't overnight, but it's just interesting how the moment you, you start to change yourself, like all the connections to you will start changing as well. That's right. Um, it's, it's psychological safety, uh, at least within the team. It's if this leader is making themselves vulnerable and they're not, you know, uh, seeing immediate public disciplinary action because they, you know, stood up and said, yeah, we messed up. Then that makes it a little bit safer to fail and try new things. And, and it makes it a little bit safer to make yourself vulnerable and it just cascades throughout the organization. Um, anybody that's capable of adopting the mindset will potentially pick it up and start adopting it, their version of it, at least. I love it. And then I'm curious to know, Owen, uh, what prompted like the need for the CTO role at Favor? You're the first CTO, correct? Uh, In some bio, it said that. It's... <laughs> I think I, yeah, I think I was. Yeah. I mean, we always had the founders. And then when I started there, there was a VP of engineering, um, which then I took that position over and then took over the CTO position. Well, so when, when the transition happened to the M&A, they were like, where are we going to place, you know, Owen, what role is Owen going to play? And then that's when you decided to, to take the CTO role. Um, yes, I think so. I mean, that, that it was, uh, I'm sure there's some grand plan for, for me when, when it comes to favor and HEB. So, you know, after, I think it was right yeah, it was right after the acquisition, you know, we moved myself into the CTO position. And that's when I started to get more involved in HEB um, on their engineering side. And so we wanted to have someone come in on the favor side that was high enough and could be on the executive team and really run the day to day. And so right now there's a VP of engineering, which basically runs a lot of the day to day stuff. And my my role at, at uh, favor is, you know, not as uh, great as what my role is at HEB right now. And I think that's um, by design right now. And what's what's the best leadership advice you've ever received? <laughs> um, you know, I think that the, uh, the best thing that I've probably heard is probably just be yourself. I think that's really the the biggest thing. Like people can see through you not being yourself. And I try to really just be myself. And to Justin's point, I wouldn't say vulnerable, but you know, show all your colors, right? Show the people who you really are. And I think that goes a long way. Yeah, authenticity is something that we can, it's like an intelligence capability of us humans. Like we can tell when people are being authentic or inauthentic. Yeah. 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 I think that that's totally true. You know, I, I think, you know, when I when I joined Favor, um, you know, I, I was uh an engineer. Like I was, you know the guy sitting in the corner coding as much as I could, you know, and I think that, and 
when I was in the trenches with with all the other engineers, and I think that went a long way, you know, as I became VP and then CTO. So, what was the hardest the hardest thing for you personally as you made that transition? Uh, you know, I've I've uh, I tell everyone, you know, anyone going through the going from an IC to uh, you know more of a management position. You know, I, I think I've in my career, I think I've done it like four or five times. <laughs> so personally, the and I tell everyone this is. The hardest thing to do is let go. You know, as an individual contributor engineer, like you want to control everything, right? Like you want to, as a manager, you have to let go and trust and, you know, let the uh, engineer do what he needs to do or she needs to do, um, as well as let them fail. You know, you, you letting them fail allows them to learn and be a better engineer. And it's hard looking from, you know, the outside and saying like, oh, if you do that, this is what's going to happen. But sometimes you have to be like, let, let them do it and let them learn. I think that's a really important, important thing. So personally, it was just like being able to let go and trust others um, when solving a problem is, was really hard. And, you know, that's why I think I went back and forth from management to IC to management to IC. And um, eventually it just kind of worked out and, now, um, I don't know if I could write a line of code. Actually, I wrote a line of code with my son uh, two weeks ago. It was a print statement. I was pretty happy with myself. There so. you go. You can instantiate like dot .new. You can, you can do it. <laughs> you can yeah. create a new object. Come on now. <laughs> I don't know. It's been, it's been a while. It's been, it's been a couple of years. But, IP know. config? Come on. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's like, it's like riding a bike, though. So I think you get back at it. I, I agree. I mean when I started this podcast all the, like the first year or two of it, I was writing, well, I've been writing code for like 17 years with like no breaks, really just writing yeah. code constantly. And then when the show got big enough where we had like teams and employees and stuff, I just went to a managing our engineering team. And normally when I was managing, I was writing some code or at least doing code reviews like frequently and things like that. So I was in there, but it's amazing, you know, how quickly the tools and everything changes or the syntax and, you know, all the, the suites and the interfaces and then the styles. It's like, I, I do feel like it would be riding a bike. Like I could get back into it and catch up real fast because those 17 years of principles, right? And that's one thing I also learned too, after learning multiple languages is the principles can transcend the language, right? Yeah. It, it, it's, you know, it's all like, uh, you know, a lot of the classes are really about like, here's a syntax on how to do this. And I'm sitting, you know, they're talking to my son. I'm like, don't care about the syntax at all. Like care about what's underlying, what's the foundational piece that you're learning. Cause you're right. It transcends across any language and syntax really doesn't matter. So when I was ta talking to my son, that reminded me like, forget about syntax and it's all principles and foundational pieces. So Justin, for your career progression, like how do you look at how do you look at your career and the progression? Because you're you're a very bright person. You're at a big company. You're doing good work, and and I have a lot of respect for you. So I'm just curious how you see your career and the progression of it. Uh, it's very non-traditional. Um, obviously, uh, I'm very lucky to be where I am. Uh, I would say ninety percent of anybody's career is timing and luck, right? Right place at the right time. Uh, that said, making sure that you have the, the right mindset, um, that you 
really are looking at all of the options available to you in any given situation. Um, being willing to take risks is the biggest boost to my career. Um, like most of my projects that led to me leading this org were moonshots. It, you know, built a little bit of credibility, built, built, you know, connections and networks. And then the next risky project would come along and I, I you know, I'd evaluate it. I'm not going to do anything that's uh, not going to succeed, but I can also look at something and go, you know what, we can make that succeed. Uh, you know, if we change some expectations around it or, or uh, you know, put these resources at it and don't be afraid to take those kind of risks. And that's, ultimately led to more responsibility, more opportunities, and anybody that finds themselves in a similar situation, I would give that advice. Have a have an ownership-based mindset where you look at yourself first for anything that needs to be resolved. You'd be open to feedback and you'd be willing to take risks and uh, you can succeed too. Boom. You nailed it. That's like a mic drop moment, my friend. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> So as we start to wrap up here, uh, is there anything else that we want to get out there into the world? Um, so anybody that's interested in learning more about HEB, I would recommend uh, hitting up our blog, uh, digital.heb.com. Uh, we post a lot of technical blogs there, context about what we're doing within the company. And then um, uh, similar, if, if you're interested in joining us and uh, helping us solve these complex problems we talked about, uh, check out heb.com slash careers and uh, check out and see if there's anything available. I know our internships just opened up um, and we also have a variety of opportunities around digital. Nice. And they can apply for the internship on the careers page. That's right. Excellent. You got anything, Owen? No, I'm, I'm a man of few words. I'm good. <laughs> He's like, I already did the best leadership advice, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is great. I had a lot of fun with you guys. Thank you so much for, for coming on and hanging out. I, I really appreciate it. And then I'll let you I'll let you know if I end up moving to Texas and then, you know, COVID finishes, vaccines come out or whatever it is, and in-person meetups and tech meetups start happening again. I'll go around to all the different towns in Texas and visit everyone and say hello. So I look forward to it. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you for having us on. Thank you, guys. You have a fantastic day. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Joel. See you, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.